Thanks for joining us today. I'm Rob Parker, lead pastor at The Plant Church. Our vision is to know Christ and make him known. If you are interested in getting connected or if we can help you in any way, email us at info at theplantchurch.org. Am I going to the beach this afternoon? Not yet? Sort of? Good. Well, uh, I want to thank you for being us here with us here. How many of you guys were at the men's event yesterday? Who had a great time? All right. It was fun. We did some axe throwing. It was a lot of fun. We'll have to do that again soon. So I know that for a lot of us, I know things are starting to open up now when we go outside and we, we go and do different things out there. But I, I, I know that it's, it's starting, but... But over the past year and a half, I know for most of us, we haven't been able to do the things that we were normally able to do. We haven't been able to go to places where we used to be able to go, like vacations and concerts and sporting events and all that. And instead, for many of us here, we've taken up other kinds of hobbies and other ways to pass up our, our time. For example, I know a lot of us, we over the last year and a half, we've binge-watched streaming TV, TV, right? Anyone do that? We binge-watched streaming TV. For some of us, we read books. For others, we read movies. And for others, we played video games. Now, for me, I was never big into video games, but when I, when I was a kid, I was. I used to play them all the time. And I still remember my first video game console. And that's right here. It was the Nintendo Entertainment System. Now you're playing with power, right? You guys remember this? How many of you guys had this? Or maybe you bought it for your kids, and you would play this all the time, and it, and it was really fun. Maybe if you were born after 1990, you have no idea what this is, but maybe you're used to playing PlayStation or Xbox or Nintendo Switch. And this Nintendo Entertainment System used this kind of ancient technology based on air pressure where you used to have to blow into the game like this. And then the more you blew and the more saliva went in, the better the game, the cartridge worked. In fact, 30% of the time when it did work, it worked 10% of the time if you, if you did that correctly. And I remember we would play all these games like Super Mario Brothers and, and Tetris, and I would borrow my friends' games like Double Dragon and Zelda and Ninja Turtles, and what happened over time is that the games and, and the console started getting better and better. Their graphics started getting better, and there was Super Nintendo and Sega Genesis and all these things. And I remember playing games like Double Dragon. Does anyone remember Double Dragon? We play that game Double Dragon, and I would be so immersed into the experience. I felt like I was in the real world fighting enemies and, and winning things. And, and I would get so caught up in the fantasy world that I, I want, would want to see how far I could get, how many levels I could beat. And I would be so caught up, so lost in my new identity and purpose as this hero virtually that I would spend hours on end. But then later, when I could beat no more levels and I could go no more further, I would get out of my days and I would be back in the real world, which was totally different from the virtual world in which I was living in for hours. 
And when I would do that, I realized that there would be this big disconnect. There was this big disconnect between what I wish was true about myself, of the superhero that, that I wanted to be in the game, and who I was in reality. And maybe for you, video games aren't your thing. Maybe you like reading books. Maybe you, you like watching movies and things like that. And there's nothing wrong with any of these things, and we need them for fun and, and, and for joy and to relax and all that. But sometimes we get so immersed living vicariously through another storyline that when the game is over or the movie ends or the book is over, the high is over. And then we realize that the life that we have in the real world is nothing like the life, the exciting story that we want to be part of in the stories that we enjoy. And I believe the same thing is true many times in faith. In our own eyes, sometimes as believers, we are so immersed in our intense faith in our minds, knowing the scripture, knowing all the books, and knowing all the right answers, and viewing ourselves as on-fire Christian superheroes, playing the game really well. But in the real world, outside of our Christian bubble, sadly, sometimes we're not heroes at all. In fact, our lives may have little to no life-giving impact or effect to others. This morning, what we're doing is we're continuing in our series of the study of James called Under Pressure. Under Pressure. And we will learn what James has to say and what God is trying to teach us both to the early church as well as the church now at present on how to deal with the disconnect between the faith that we have in our minds and the actions that we need to have in reality. So the first thing that James wants to tell us is this. The first point is this, that faith without action is dead. Faith without action is dead. If you have your Bibles, please turn to James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. And I'll read that for you. James chapter 2, verses 14. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions, can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye, and have a good day, stay warm, and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing? What good does that do? So you see, faith it by itself isn't enough, unless it produces good deeds. It is dead and useless. So just to give you a little background about what's going here in this book of James. James is a leader of the early church and he's writing to the church. He was the leader of the church of Jerusalem that was scattered because of persecution. And he is writing to all of those people from that church that were scattered. And what he was doing is he was reminding them to practice what they believed in action. See, James was writing to these new Jewish believers in Christ who were finally set free from the power of the law and from the power uh, of, of having to do all these re religious legalistic works to obtain salvation. You know, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 to 10, Paul writes 
God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for, for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. So these early believers, these Christians, many whom were immature in their enjoyment of this newfound freedom that they had under grace, they went the other extreme, thinking that deeds and actions would not matter anymore. But what James was doing is that he wasn't contradicting Paul, but what he did was he took that truth a step further by saying, yes, you have salvation through faith alone and that not works. But that true faith in its fullness is a faith that is translated into action. Otherwise, it's an incomplete or a dead faith. That verse in Ephesians goes on to say that, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. The good things that we do in our life are a direct result of the new life that we have and the new life-giving faith that we possess. And he gives this practical example. If you are a follower of Christ and you say to your brother or, or sister in need, goodbye, have a good day, stay warm and eat well, but don't give them food or clothing, it is useless because by saying this, you're saying that you are aware of their clear need. But if you don't act to bring a resolution to that situation, your faith is dead and useless. And these are very, James, as you've been seeing in James, James is, is harsh, right? These are very clear, sharp, and strong words. Faith without deeds is dead and useless. Let me share with you a story. Uh, in the early 2000s, I was a, a freshman or sophomore in college in uh, New York City. And I helped lead one of the many Christian campus groups that were on campus. And one day as we were walking through the village, through the city, we were walking and it was myself and another leader from our fellowship. We were probably headed to a worship night or a Bible study or something like that, and, and our minds and our eyes were on autopilot. We were heading there. Now, if you've ever lived in the city, you know who's from the people that are from the city and those that are not from the city, because if you're from the city, you are on autopilot. You're navigating the crowds, crossing roads. So, so our minds and eyes were fixed on where we, we were headed. So as we were walking along, all of a sudden, a woman calls out from behind us, and we turned around. And it was a younger woman, a, a minority, and she asked, excuse, excuse me, can you buy me a sandwich? Now, there are lots of homeless people in this city, and, and sadly, unfortunately, after a while, sometimes you kind of zone out for some of these requests, but this re request was entirely a unique circumstance because this person was a woman in need. A lot of times, it's, it, you see men that ask, but this was a woman who was in need, and she wasn't asking, and, and more, more uniquely, she wasn't asking for money. She was specifically asking for food, specifically a sandwich. But tragically and sadly, we, as we were headed out, we, we turned around quickly. And we said sorry in a split second. And we started continuing walking toward our Christian fellowship meeting. About 10 seconds 
later when we finally process what we did. The conviction of the Holy Spirit just, just fell over me and with, with sadness and, and grieving. It hit me like a ton of bricks. What, what did I just do? Because I remembered the verse from Jesus in Matthew chapter 25, verse 40, that says, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you were doing it to me. And I thought, what have I done? And I turned around and looked around, and she had disappeared. She was no longer there. She was out of sight. And I felt so convicted. What if she was really in need? What if she was starving? What if she was an undocumented immigrant trying to escape? Or, or what if she was a victim of human trafficking? What, what if she hadn't eaten for, for, for weeks? What if she was an angel? I don't know. But here I was, a leader of a Christian club, thinking that I was a faith hero in my mind, playing the Christian faith game really well. But in that instance, my faith was dead and useless. That was definitely not one of my proudest moments. And I thought to myself, I can never let this happen again. You see, faith is a lot more than just a, a spiritual reality that's out there. But real faith brings spiritual realities into the physical world. And as believers, we are called by Jesus to take care of the physical needs of those that are around us. And we see this throughout Scripture. 1 John 3, 17 to 19 says, If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. The parable that we read in James clearly reflects and resembles a parable of the Good Samaritan, the, the parable that we all know. There was a priest and, and a Levite that was walking down the road, and they saw a man that was robbed and beaten, but they walked by. But then there was a Samaritan who was an outcast. He saw what happened, and, and he demonstrated by, in faith by stepping into help, saving the life of that man and taking care of him. The Samaritan's faith in that circumstance was not dead, but he brought life, life to that situation, life to that man, and even taking care of that man afterward. Dynamic faith always brings life. You know how we could tell if our faith is dead? By whether or not our actions back it up. If you are someone that's a follower of Christ and you have been redeemed by Christ, there must be fruit. You can't have this encounter with living Jesus and not be completely changed because if absolutely nothing has changed in your life, either your faith wasn't real in the first place or you have been blocking and, and hesitant to allow the Holy Spirit to do its work of sanctification in changing who you are to make you more like him. Now I know this teaching in James makes a lot of us very, very uncomfortable because we have to face the, the fact that there may be a disconnect between what we believe and what we actually do. And we may even try to rationalize and squeeze it into our theology to fit our lifestyle and our worldview. But James knew what his readers were thinking and he has this rebuttal. And this is his next point, that deeds are not optional. Deeds are not optional in our faith. 
verse 18. Now some of you may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith for you believe there is one God? Good for you. Even the demons believe this and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Now you might say, you know what? I'm not really into actions and deeds. There are other people that are out there. They're more naturally inclined to serve others. They're more naturally extroverted. They're maybe they're naturally more wired to talk to people and to take action and, and to smile. And they have that gift. But for me, my faith is more intellectual. My faith is, is, is just between me and God and, and no one else. It's like a personal thing. So I'm excused from taking action. And you may try to rationalize this, but we all, we all do this, but no. Because he's saying, I'm sorry, you can't show faith without deeds, and likewise, you can only show faith through your deeds. And he gives this example. In Deuteronomy 6.4, there in the Old Testament, there's this ancient core prayer known as the Shema. It was a daily prayer that all Jewish believers and people would pray declaring that there is only one true God, and, and it said, listen, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord alone. What he was saying is, is, is this, just by being religious and, and saying a prayer and believing something intellectually is not enough. Why? Because big deal. The demons also believe that God is real and God is alive. That's an obvious reality. But the difference between between demons and believers is that the believer is supposed to act on their belief about God's reality. They're supposed to act in bringing God's reality to life, God's plan and God's kingdom into this physical reality. As many of you know, as a church, we support international work around the world. We're part of a denomination called the Christian and Missionary Alliance with hundreds of of workers bringing the message of the gospel, both in word and deed, to the ends of the earth and to unreached places. And there are workers that are out there that are speaking the truth of Christ into relationships, baptizing people, discipling them, doing all these things, but, but they don't just do this so-called religious work. But they are putting their faith into action bringing life to the people of these areas in intangible and incarnational ways, meeting needs where local governments are unable to do so, teaching people, teaching children, teaching the disabled, providing food and medicines even during this time of pandemic, demonstrating that their faith is a faith that is alive and living. No matter how passionate you are about your belief intellectually, or emotionally in your heart, if you don't take action in some way, it doesn't matter. And all believers are called to this, not just the ministers, not just the, the elders or, or the mature believers, but all believers are called to take action. So why are deeds not optional? Because when the world sees believers with just faith alone... Oftentimes, it doesn't mean anything to them. It's so far out of their context. In fact, sometimes it brings massive confusion because we preach an eternally life-giving message, 
But that message is not bringing life to the real and tangible world through our lives, tangibly. So what does living faith look like? What is this actually supposed to look like? And this is what James has to say. He says that, he, that what he's trying to say is that dynamic faith is a faith that always brings life. Faith that always brings life. Dynamic faith has power. And James shares these two examples of that. Let's read verse 21. Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened just as the scriptures say. Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Rahab the prostitute is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. So the first example is a more popular example about Abraham. We all know Abraham. He was the father of the nation of Israel. His actions made his faith complete. His actions was, were, were actually a proof of, that his faith was real when he attempted to offer Isaac on the altar of obedience. And his obedience showed that, that he, was, he was saved and that he was righteous by his faith. But then we see the less known story of Rahab. Rahab the prostitute. Now this was a completely different example. Rahab was a, a Gentile enemy, living a sinful life in a sinful, non-believing land. And just to give you, recap some of the story, before the Israelites entered the promised land, Joshua, their new leader, sent spies across the Jordan River into Jericho to check out the city and see what was going on there. And they stayed at the house of the prostitute, Rahab, because it was a place where lodging travelers could go and, and hide out. When the king heard that there were spies in their city, he started looking for them. But instead of turning them in, Rahab hid them. And Rahab told the spies that he knew that the Lord had given them this land. And fighting against them was futile because God was on their side. And even in Jericho and in the, in the surrounding areas of that place, they had heard stories about how this God, Yahweh, had delivered his people out of Egypt. And he, and he had destroyed all of their enemies. So then she told them, these spies, promise me that you will save my family and myself when you take over the city. And then she hid them. And after the king's guards have left, she helped them escape out of the wall of the city. We know the story, what happens next. The Israelites came and with God's help, they marched around the city and they shouted and the walls came, came down and they, did, they destroyed everything in the city, but they did spare the life of Rahab and her entire family. Rahab and her family were adopted into the tribes of Israel. And in fact, she became an ancestor of Christ. Rahab was an unlikely hero living amidst a sinful people. 
And with just minimal information, she acted on what she was believing. She also believed the Shema. She believed that there was this one true God and this one true God, Yahweh, was the Lord. But because she believed that was true, she acted on it. It was her Kairos moment. And unlike the example that James shares in the beginning, where believers aren't taking care of each other's needs, even as believers, Rahab acted in faith, providing hospitality and care, saving the lives of those spies and protecting them. What she was doing as she stepped out, she took a big risk. It was a big risk. Hiding those spies could have costed her her life. So did sharing that news with her family. But her actions brought life to the spies as well as her own family. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without the works that show that that faith is real. You see, the real movers of the kingdom are heroes like Rahab, whose hearts and minds are stirred, but they also take a step in action, translating that faith into reality. How many people out there like to follow technology? Anyone science and technology out there? So I love following science and technology and, and you know, different types of things like that. And, and uh, as, you do, as I've done that, if, if you've watched the development of technology and video games and apps and things like that, we've, we've come a long way. And over the last several years, there's been the development of this technology called augmented reality. Has anyone heard that before? Augmented reality. Augmented reality is basically uh, what it is. It's superimposing the virtual world onto the real world. And there's so many apps that do this. There's so many things that you can do. You look through your camera and you see yourself and you could virtually superimpose hats and do a makeover and different outfits and try on different things. If you want to buy a couch from a furniture store but you don't want to buy it but you want to see what it looks like in your house, you take the camera and point it in the corner of your living room and you can, you can virtually add the, the couch there and see if it's the right color and what it looks like. And there are lots of games like this, like uh, the Nintendo Pokemon game, which you might have heard of in the news the last couple of years, where, where you would uh, look through the, the, the app on your camera, and you would see different virtual characters doing different challenges and things like that over real-world landmarks in your community, in your, in your neighborhood. And there's, there are all kinds of things like that, even with engineering and uh, science and technology. But... Why do I bring this up? Why is this relevant to us? You see, instead of playing the game of faith just in your mind, how are you augmenting your reality that you see by superimposing the faith that you have in Christ into the real world? How are you seeing the real world and bringing life in the midst of death and decay, seeing what's going on and, and feeding the poor, helping the sick, speaking words of life, helping someone in distress, mentoring a young person, taking care of the widows and the orphans, or bringing hope into place where there is injustice. Now, hearing all this, I'm sure like 
me might make you feel overwhelmed. Maybe like me, you, you have this overwhelming sense of, of conviction or guilt and you, and you look around and be like, oh my gosh, there are people all around the world, they're doing all these amazing things and all these other people are volunteering in the community and they're doing all these amazing things and I don't know where to start, what impact am I making? But what I want to do as I leave you is I want to give you three easy steps on how to move from a life of faith that's stuck in your mind to a faith that is lived out in action. So first, how do we do this? First, identify your barriers. Identify your barriers. You see, while you may be believing a narrative in your mind, you may be actually living out a false narrative in reality. You see, this world provides us with so many different types of, of narratives that keep us busy in our busyness. And there are narratives of consumerism and of materialism and, and working for the weekend and, and keeping up with the Joneses and unlimited distractions and unlimited entertainment and all these things. And we could go through our entire life just busy by being busy without having made any real impact at all and one day when we look back on our lives we will say what have I done Jesus gave me this calling but I didn't really live that out so I want to ask you this question what barrier or barriers is it for you that are keeping you from a life of action is it the busyness from from entertainment or consumerism or, 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 or career in unhealthy ways or, or something else. Identify what are your top one or two barriers that prevent you from stepping out in action. Two, be alert at all times. Be alert at all times. You see, usually when we start our days, we start our days with ourselves in the center. We plan out our days being on autopilot and the things that, that we want to do and, and take care of. But when we start our days with our days in the center on autopilot, what happens is we then get completely unprepared and caught off guard when needs come our way because we can't be inconvenienced then. So instead, as you plan your day, as you plan your week, build in margin Build in, in, in margin to slow down, to keep your eyes and your ears open, to be fully available and fully present and aware. Allow the Holy Spirit to augment your reality of what you see with spiritual realities. Because I promise you, when you make yourself available, the needs will come to you. You will be surprised at the opportunities that God brings your way. Remember, there are billions of people that are praying to God constantly, God is waiting, for, for, waiting to use you to deliver his answer to them. So first, identify your barriers. Well, what are the barriers keeping you from action? Two, be alert at all times. Create margin so you can be aware and you can listen to the Holy Spirit. And three, start small. Start small. Don't try to change the world overnight. But ask yourself the question, who is in your small sphere of influence? Who are the people in your sphere, whether strangers or acquaintances, neighbors, coworkers, your friends, friends, your kids' parents' friends? 
You know, living in, in the suburbs is, is very hard sometimes relationally because when you go outside, you don't always see uh, homelessness or poverty and things like that. But, but poverty and, and, and brokenness is still very prevalent where we live in, in our suburbs, behind closed doors. Families do have hidden financial needs. Families are living in debt. There are people that have medical illnesses. There are many people that are suffering from de depression and substance abuse and marital and family conflicts and, and, and divorce and kids and teens trying to find purpose and identity in destructive ways. But by fostering relationships, you will discover the needs. Maybe the Spirit, God is telling you to help someone in a financial way. Maybe it's stepping into their life to, to listen to them and, and hear what they're going through emotionally. Maybe it's to, to help give their kid a ride to school or pick up something from the store or mow their lawn or, or do something else. But I promise you that if you are in relationship with people that are around you, especially those that don't know the Lord, you will find what those needs are. So who are those two to three people or three to five people that are in that sphere of influence that you have? I'm going to invite the band to come up and get started for the next song. And I'm going to invite you to, to stand with me as we close in worship. You see, when we put our faith in action... It not only just changes the world, but it changes us too. It changes us. And instead of having this disconnect between what we believe and our reality, let's be a people that, that lives in alignment, that lives with integrity. Because when we do so, then our actual lives become what we've always dreamed for them to be. We're no longer vicariously living our lives in games or, or stories of, of some, someone else or, or other people. But instead, our real lives then become amazing. Our real lives become exciting. We are on mission. We have purpose. We have exciting stories to share with each other about faith and blessing. And this is what the Christian life is supposed to look like, bringing life in places of death and decay. The fifth book of the New Testament is not called the faith of the apostles or the words of the apostles or the prayers of the apostles. It's called what? The acts of the apostles. Being real life servant heroes reflecting the real hero Jesus and pointing to his love and his grace and his mercy on his cross and his resurrection. The gospel is all about Jesus bringing new life to us, turning the graves into gardens. And the whole point of the gospel is to return the world to the, to the garden where we can be in communion with God again, where there is no tear, where there is no hopelessness. And this is the privilege that God has called you and I to as believers to step in and be a part of. Because when our faith manifests in action, the kingdom of God becomes a tangible reality, real and present. So with that, let's worship together. It was great having you with us today. 
We do hope that this sermon inspired you to know Christ and make him known. For more sermons and resources, please visit us at theplantchurch.org.